Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital, all the pro plugins, one more monthly price, and now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Joey Sturgis Forum Podcast. I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me, as always, is Joel Wanasek and Al Levy. And have you guys ever seen a mongoose? Yeah, that's one of those strange animals that defies all logic, basically. I saw it at the zoo once, I think. What do you mean? Why, did, do you own one or something? You got one in your house? No, nah, I just wanted to start the show with a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we wanted to do that, we could have talked about mixing. <laughs> no, I definitely have seen a mongoose. They're brutal. I used to have a mongoose bike. Do you remember mongoose bikes? Oh, that's a little bit different than an actual mongoose. Well, yeah, obviously there's... <laughs> I don't know if you can really even ride a mongoose. Is that like a thing? Well, you could if you were a small person. <laughs> well, okay, so in reality about mongooses or mongoose, how many of you guys have actually watched a video of it killing a cobra i've seen that dude you don't mess with a mongoose it'll whoop your ass joey have you seen that no i'm looking this up right now oh it's it's awesome there's like all these cool insect videos and like like for example i watched a rabbit school a snake because it like constricted its babies last week and it was like the coolest thing and all of a sudden i look up at the thing and it's like two hours later and all i've been doing is watching bug or animal fight videos (laughs) (laughs) the thing with a mongoose is that it's known for going after king cobra snakes like and it will kill them it's kind of amazing yeah i'm watching it right now it's like a six pound animal but it can kill like massive snakes and stuff that are highly venomous yeah find the most badass thing possible then fight it to the death and make a living doing it that's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard that the pay rate for mongooses is one of the highest paid jobs in America. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, you were saying holy shit? Yeah, because I'm watching it fight this cobra and the cobra is trying to strike it and then it just like jumps in the air and does like a 360 hurling backflip or something. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's truly a superior little dude right there. The real question is, can you do a 360-degree hurling backflip on your mongoose bike? Maybe that's why they named it the mongoose. I had like a dino, but my buddy had a mongoose, and he could never even get off the ramp, so I don't know. What is a mongoose bike? Is this something that like you... Uh, it's like a trick. It's a, yeah, a trick bike from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, stuff I never did because I didn't want to hurt my hands. Oh, word. Well, we didn't really have friends either, but you know, we used to watch kids play with them outside in the street while we sat by the window and calculated audio stuff wow you're such a loser (laughs) (laughs) well no there's just this whole thing about i wanted to be a guitar player and if i did dumb shit like that the likelihood of getting into an accident and ruining my hands was way higher than if i didn't do dumb shit like that (laughs) and uh the thing is there's lots of people who when i was younger would call me paranoid or a pussy or whatever for not getting involved in activities like that but just about all of them at some point have broken some major bone in some stupid fucking accident. That's a great point. I had a friend, Philip, in, we'll just say elementary, middle school, and he broke nine bones. It was one to two every year. 
for a series of like five years. We'd go out and play. He'd build the biggest bike ramp and he'd always have to jump off it. I'd be like, I'm not jumping off that shit. He'd be like, oh, don't be a pussy. And then he'd go and break his freaking like <laughs> clavula or some bone. Is that even a bone? It sounds like a bone. Yeah. <laughs> Pick a bone that sounds like it would hurt a lot to break. And he broke that <laughs> and he broke it often. So the way I see it is if you value your appendages for something, don't get involved with things like that. Here's another perfect example. Kevin Talley, a drummer who actually, I mean, he's just this invincible dude. Since I've known him, he's just kind of always defied death. Do snowboarding, biking, all that kind of extreme stuff. But eventually on his dirt bike, he was on a sand dune, went over a cliff because he didn't realize it was a cliff, ruptured his lower intestine and had to be airlifted, almost died. Holy crap. Yeah, of course, since he's invincible, he's back to playing drums and suffocation, and it's as though it never happened. But any lesser human being would be dead. Well, I mean, if you're going to have like a death metal accident, that would be the best way to do it. It better be pretty death metal, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's cred, (laughs) I feel like. That's just more street cred. Like, dude... Intestinal puncture, not even a problem. (laughs) Well, speaking of intestinal punctures... um, (laughs) Yeah, what day is it today? (laughs) Well, today we're doing a Mixed Crit Monday, and this one's going to be a little different. This is going to be a little bit more of a progress report on someone who's been subscribed to the show for a while and is doing a lot better now because of the show. Not just subscribed to the show, but he came to a boot camp that we did in Florida in December of 2014, all the way from Portugal. Yeah. That's commitment right there. Yeah. And he, he's mixing. He's, is he recording as well? Do we know that? Oh yeah. He's doing it all. He's one of these guys who builds his own recording desks, builds his traps, builds gear, buys the kits, builds the gear. I mean, he's doing it. That's awesome. Yeah. We just want to highlight, uh, this guy has improved leaps and bounds since he's entered our world and hopefully we can make an example out of that and show you guys where he's at check out what his most recent work sounds like and uh kind of analyze it from that point of view yeah and uh let me just also say that the first time i ever came into contact with this cat was right after my creative live mixing class and at the end of 2014 i did a mix script for him and it was okay i could tell he was talented but since then It's just come leaps and bounds. And so it's just always cool to see someone who actually has put in the work and gotten way better and, you know, is making a full-time living off of this stuff. Doing what we said. Absolutely. Someone actually listens to us? Come on. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) Go figure. I can't even get my kid to listen to me. Well, you know, maybe we need to bring him on Mixed Crit Monday. (laughs) Well, not that one. He doesn't talk yet. (laughs) Even better. So anyways, uh, dude is Tiago Carvalho. I hope I pronounce his name right, and we are going to bring him into the call now. Hey, welcome to the show, Tiago. How you doing? Uh, great. What time is it? Where are you? You're in Portugal, right? Yeah, in Portugal. It's uh, 7.30 p.m. That's not so bad. Well, thanks for being with us. Uh, we were talking about earlier on how I've actually been in touch with you for a little while, and you actually came to the boot camp in Florida, which I thought was crazy awesome, just considering that you had to actually fly over an ocean to come uh, <laughs> hang out with us and learn some recording. So What if he swam? Yeah, that would probably take me a little while, but uh, it was just <laughs> like a, a great opportunity that, uh, that appeared. I was looking for something to educate myself further, 
And then I saw the boot camp with Eyal teaching everything and Joey also coming along to a one day and showing how he does his stuff and everything was, it was really cool. It was uh, one of the greatest experiences I ever ever had in a recording environment. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, glad to hear that. But I actually had talked to you before that. I was saying that I had created one of your mixes right after the Creative Live yeah, yeah. Uh, mixing class. But the one that we're going to talk about today is way better than that. I mean, you've come a really, really long way. So Thank you so much. You know, it's just the truth. And you've also expanded your client base quite a bit. So I just want to talk a bit about that, like where you were a year ago versus where you are today in terms of your studio build, what kind of clients you're getting, things like that. What would you say is like the number one difference in your working life uh, the biggest difference at least for me was to in the recording boot camp was to to see the standard you know what i mean like the standard on which things are acceptable and w which things are not example i get a, a band coming in they set up the drums in five minutes and so are we ready to record just it's a, it's a, like that's the only way to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the only, with beat up old skins and uh, cracked cymbals. Like yeah, that's that's my what, what I'm what I'm into. So, <laughs> no, but uh, to, to see the standard was like the best information I could have. It was like really important for me. At least that and all the stuff I saw in Creative Life from Ayal, like using quick keys. That also was a major eye opening for me in the list of work process and. The speed of workflow, it was like a really, really big difference. Let's talk a little bit more about the standard, because I think while you can say that, and that sounds like a very simple thing. But it isn't. It isn't. It's a, it's a huge difference. Like, y'all showing me like this snare, well-tuned, proper mic placement, a good preamp, and a proper level, and this is what you get. I was even talking to y'all. I never got a, a snare sound like this in, in my environment. Is it well, now you know. And that's right. Now I know. And I can apply it. In, and I've been applying it in the, the recordings I've been done. I haven't recorded many drums since then. I'll record like two or three bands doing live drums. So I haven't been able to practice all of that stuff that I learned in the boot camp. But every time I get a chance to try it out, different things I learn, I do it. I think that one of the hardest things for people who are coming up is just knowing how good is good enough with something because, you know, yeah. you have the records you listen to. And that's one thing. But unless you're actually there in the room with the person making them, you don't really, really know what it took like for instance with your um, way you track drums like for instance you like one or two days to set up uh, choose the, the the right snare the right toms the right cymbals the right uh, skins the right beaters or whatever all that stuff it's the accumulation of subtleties that, like you you always talk about it's the accumulation of small stuff that in the end makes the big picture like having a sweet kid all mic'd up and then the drummer sucks or the other way around. <laughs> a great drummer, but a crappy kid. I've had uh, all of those experiences, and now some of my clients, I'm starting to talk to them more about this and the important because at the end of the day, it's their money. It's like one more or two extra days in the studio. It might not be in their budget, and they're not willing to go the extra mile. But now I can explain to them more articulately that all of those things make a difference in the end results. And it's like, oh, we'll fix it in the mix, we'll just put a sample or whatever. It's not like that. 
at, at least from, from from what I saw in the bootcamp, it, it's like shit going in, shit going out, or gold coming in and platinum coming out. It's it's the same principle. Well, one of the hardest things when you're first starting out is getting your clients to trust you. So if a client doesn't trust you yet and you say, well, your timeline for getting these results is unrealistic, we actually need a little bit more time to get it done. Someone who doesn't have a track record or is just starting might get resistance. A client might say, you're just trying yeah. to milk us for money. Or the last time we recorded, we set up in one hour and did the whole album in three days. So why do we need to take the time? And as you... Exactly. Yeah. But if you actually understand why in your bones, like you really get it, it makes it that much easier for you to explain it. Yeah. And now it's what you said the other day. What are you pretending not to know? When I didn't know, that could fly. It, it could happen. Oh, I haven't changed my snare and the skin in three months. I say, okay, do it. But now I see the standard and I, I can't. I just insist you have to get new skins. Everything has to be perfect, tuned, and at least the best of what we can do and to our knowledge. Of course, I don't have like a super big uh, drum kits to lying around. I have just two. But even with those two, we can pick and choose like four snares. We can choose one or the other and try it out. And the end result, they hear it. When they trust me, the new clients I'm getting and recording stuff, when I explain this to them and I say, I don't mind spending one or two extra days just to get the right tones and everything, and they see the difference. And that's, that's the most rewarding thing. They, they trust and they hear the difference from previous recordings or whatever they had in the past. I feel like a really important takeaway, too, on that when communicating with clients is that you know, if you're trying to get signed as a band, you're approaching investors and investors want to know if they're going to pour a bunch of money into you, what it's going to, what is it going to sound like? And is it going to generate a return? So it's very important that the band understands and you communicate to them as the producer that they have to do a really awesome job because if they do a great job, they will look like a great professional band. If they do a crappy job and try to half-ass the recording, they will look like that to the investor. And why would you invest in something that's going to fail? I mean, no one wants to fail, and especially when you're playing with real money. Yeah. There's something that Andrew Wade said when he came on, which I really liked. And he was like, hey, you know what? There's there's like an assumption here that is getting lost in translation or, or somehow is not being made apparent. And that is, we're all trying to do a good job here. The end goal of this is for everyone to, you know, create a great product so that we all benefit from it. Yeah. You know, my name's on it, your name's on it. I want to be good. You want it to be good. So even down to like, not not even just an engineering thing, but even on a production level, it helps to have that that sort of common understanding and that trust. It's hard to get to that point, though, where there is that trust. But I think that definitely the more confidence an engineer can have, the easier it'll be for a band to trust them. Of course, their track record yeah. speaks volumes, but if you can articulate very, very well why it's important to take certain steps to get a better result, it's that much easier to convince them that you're right. Well, confidence is everything too as a yeah, producer, yeah. especially when you're working with a new client, because people will come in and they're unsure. They've never worked with you. They may have heard of you. And, you know, they've heard some of your work, but they have no idea what you're going to do with them. And if they walk in and you're super confident, super upbeat towards them, you're conveying a lot of energy and excitement and enthusiasm, they're going to pick up on that vibe right away and they're going to lock into it. 
and it's going to be a much more positive session and they're going to be a lot more willing to listen to your ideas and to try them as opposed if you kind of come in with poor body language and posture and you're just like hey what's up guys and you know you kind of look downtrodden you got to come in with a little bit of spark and a little bit of spunk <laughs> for lack of a better word yeah <laughs> but it does go a long way you just you have to come in confident yeah i'm actually quite friendly to all the the people that come in my studio and are never like down or feeling blue or whatever. <laughs> I actually try to be friendly with everybody. I also have like accommodation here in the studio, so I also try to show them where everything is, the the kitchen, how are the beds, uh, everything. How's everything laid out in the studio also? Let's talk about your actual studio a little bit because I remember when I posted in our private producers club for people to post pictures of their control rooms, you know, it spans the range. Some people are in the bedroom. Some people are in really, really nice rooms and everything in between. Yeah, widespread. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that's special about yours was that yours looks great and everything, but you built that yourself. Let's talk a little bit about that because a lot of people think that you can only have a great looking studio or all these things if you spend a ton of money. RLX all the way. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't do that, guys. <laughs> no, actually, I, I've always been like involved in doing DIY stuff. It's always been like a fascination for me, like knowing how stuff works and knowing how to build stuff. First of all, my studio was like a really small one room where I had uh, two rooms in one. One was the control room and one was the tracking room. Then over the years, the rooms that were next to mine became available and I expanded getting a new tracking room. It was just like a, the room right next to me. Then I got a kitchen. Then I got another room where I built uh, bedrooms and a living room and the um, accommodations. <laughs> accommodations, yeah. Yeah, so you did it piece by piece. Yeah, it was a, a natural growth. Then when I was like two or three years in the, in the studio, I was just like the most horrifying thing was my mixes weren't translating well. <laughs> they sounded great in the studio, but then as, as soon as I took them out, put it on an iPod or took them to my car, it sounded like crap. And then I thought, maybe it's the monitors, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And then I thought, maybe I should just treat my room. And then I looked up how to treat your room. I called a friend of mine who was actually my teacher, is an acoustics expert. So I brought him in and we did like a couple of tests during one or two days. And he gave me like a blueprint of, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. So I got to work, ordered all the wood I would need for the construction, and then started putting it piece by piece. And the cost of doing that? Fraction, fraction. It was like everything I did, the walls, uh, I did clouds, and it was all like under 500 euros, really cheap. And just takes a, a little bit of time. And if you have like a, a friend or two that can help you, it really speeds up the process. So guys listening, that's about 500 euros, maybe about $750. Yeah. Look in the Private Producers Club and search for my post asking for people to post pictures of their control rooms and look at Tiago's stuff. It looks amazing. And realize that that was less than $750. Bucks. And also realize that when you see people's rooms covered in shitty Oralex <laughs> and solutions like that, they paid way more than 750 bucks. All right. So when I got my first studio in the basement, the first thing I went out is I didn't even get Oralex. I got like foambymail.com. I mean, Oralex is what it is, but I mean, this is like a whole nother level of bullshit, you know? And I spent like a thousand bucks. I, I bought so much foam that I turned my room into like, I don't know, like it, everything sounded kind of like inside of Darth Vader's mask, uh, Star Wars style. <laughs> it was a really weird feeling. And um, I had to like get rid of half the foam I bought. 
And then, you know, after like two or three years of having that crap, I finally bought some GIK stuff and I just switched out the bass traps. And I was like, holy shit, why didn't I do this before? And I felt like an idiot yeah. because I listened to some fool on Gear Sluts, of course, saying that, you know, oh yeah, just uh, go get some Oralex. And I'm like, oh cool, well here's a cheaper Oralex, so I'll just do that. But it's really important to do it correctly and to build correct traps and they don't yeah. have to be necessarily expensive. Uh, you could save yourself a thousand dollars unlike me and not waste your time and not feel stupid. And also two or three years of your life of putting out really crappy mixes because you can't hear. So do it right. If building is not the way you want to go in my experience and research at GIK acoustics is the least expensive, highest quality maker of the acoustic traps. I don't know anybody else that's at that price point that makes them quite as good, but still... Yeah, I have tons of it. And I have a lot of GIK stuff, but you're still going to be price-wise way above than if you build it yourself. Yeah, it's a really smart investment. And it's it's not that hard, really. It's just like wood, a couple of screws, some fabric, rock wool, and you're good to go. It's not rocket science. And it made all the difference in the world. It completely made all the difference. My speakers sounded like another pair of speakers. I was working with them like for a year and a half. Right now I have two sets of speakers. The Yamaha's HS8s and the NS10s. Do not tell Bobcats. <laughs> <laughs> that joke will never get old. <laughs> Don't worry, he's not listening. We love Bob, dude. He's great. Got a question for you. How much time would you estimate you've spent on your room? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't know they need to spend a lot of time on the room. And then I, second of all, I think there's a lot of people who will listen to that suggestion, spend maybe an hour or two, and then be like, okay, I did it. I put time into my room. There's people like Jason Sukoff out there who redo their room like every year and it takes like a whole one or two months to even do it right yeah but that's the other extreme you, because he's already out of that room that you saw last wow. year he, that room's <laughs> no longer yeah you you don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole but that's what i'm saying is i'm curious how much time do you estimate you've spent on the room because i i do think that people listening to this might not know that you've spent longer than assumed It wasn't that long, it really. The first uh, two years when I switched from the other room to this uh, control room, it was like about two years of doing crappy mixes, basically. And after that, it took me about yeah. 10 days. It's only 10 days because I was doing it all by myself. But that proves the point. That's yeah. 10 days, not one hour. 10 days, and I was doing everything myself, like sourcing out everything, going out and buying rock wool, finding the right fabric, getting the right dimensions of the wood that I needed. All that stuff, it was under 10 days, yeah. But I guess that's exactly Joey's point. Some guys might... Spend an hour and no, that won't cut it. Yeah, go online, find one of those room calculator yeah. graphs, Uh, see where they think the primary reflection points are, throw some stuff on the walls no. and think that they're done with it and not understand why their mixes still don't translate. I mean, you might as well just buy Oralex. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> that was also like a, a different learning curve. I was always hear things in one way and then I started hearing it another way. But that way that I was listening also started to translate much better outside of my room because that's the that's the goal like i don't want people to coming in oh, it sounds super sweet then i put it on the a car or a laptop or, or whatever and it doesn't sound anywhere near or like no bass that was one of the biggest problems i had was like i could feel like a, a shit ton of bass <laughs> and it was like awesome this mix slams and then i put it on anywhere else and it sounded dull thin like nothing and it was all because of the room 
The room was exciting the low end so much that I thought it was really good, but it wasn't quite enough. And so after that, I started putting back my mixes when I put the new setup. And then I saw these mixes are thin, like really, really thin. And then I started redoing the mixes, take out my car. or And then it was like, these sound like much more what I was hearing in my control room. And that's the, the whole point of doing room treatment. That's awesome. So speaking of mixes, do we want to uh, jump into this and listen to this mix or what? Yeah. Yep, let's do it. Okay, the, the band's name is the Medusa Smile, and the song is called uh, Tainted. Hey guys, Al here, and I just want to take a moment to talk to you about this month on Nail the Mix. If you're already a subscriber, thank you so much. We appreciate the hell out of you. But if you're not, and you want to seriously up your mixing game, then you might want to consider Nail the Mix this month. We have a guest mixer, Mr. Kane Cherko, and he will be mixing Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. And when you subscribe, you get the multi-tracks that he recorded and produced. Uh, you download them. You can enter a mix competition uh, with prizes by McDSP. You get an Emerald Pack version 6. That's like a... $1,600 software package. Plus, um, the winner also gets one year of the Everything Bundle from Slate. So really, really good prize package for uh, our mixed competition winners. We've also got a second place package that rules. And uh, yeah, if you join Nail the Mix, you also get bonus access to our exclusive community, which is other audio... Uh, professionals and aspiring professionals just like you who just dork out on this stuff all day and night and love spreading knowledge it's troll free and so whether you're noob or experienced it's a great place to just come talk about the thing we all share which is a love for audio so once again if um, you haven't subscribed to nail the mix yet this might be a great month to try. Um, you get to learn how Kane Cherko mixed the number one single Face Everything and Rise by Papa Roach. Just go to nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach. That's nailthemix.com slash Papa Roach.
Okay, first of all, awesome. I like the song. And we'll talk about what can be better about it. But I think the main point of this is to showcase that you've made a big improvement. Huge improvement. And it's really... Yeah, this is a really good mix. It sounds Yeah, and it's hard to find anything wrong with it (laughs) in the first place. So let's start there. (laughs) The way I like to think about these things is, forget I'm doing a crit. What if I just came across this on YouTube or something? Or, you know, a friend of mine was like, check out this band. If I heard this mix, I wouldn't think about the mix. I would be listening to the song. And that, to me right there, is a a really big thing. Because if the mix is bad, that'll be the first thing I key in on. Well, I'll start with the brutality then. (laughs) So, okay. So the only thing I really had on this, and I listened to this mix several times, and I tried to deconstruct it because this is a mix crit show. But again, like I said, Tiago, I really like it. I think you really did an awesome job with this. So I'm splitting hairs here. We're talking about 1% or 2%. We're not talking about like major surgery or anything like that. So I think that the top end of the whole mix, and maybe it's mostly predominantly guitars and cymbals, I'm not quite sure 100%, but I feel like it's a tad on the harsh slash bright side, and it's not like too much, but it's just a little bit, and I feel like, again, I know we talk about notching out little frequencies, but I feel like there's just a couple of accumulated resonances up there that just need a narrow cue cut, maybe even in the master, and like it would do wonders for the mix. It's just kind of like a little bit tricking my ear, at least in my room on my monitors, And that's basically the only thing, major thing, other than a few preferential things. But I mean, in terms of like balance and stuff like that and like low end, I I felt very good about it. Actually, this was the the one I felt was the the weakest song. So this was the song that gave me like more trouble mixing. I have the other songs of the of this band that I think personally sounded better. But since you guys are critting, this is the one I had most trouble on getting the right amount of of balance because there's like so many stuff happening at the same time in several points of the song. Like at one eighteen or something, it's like after that lead that has a tom fill, double bass, uh, guitars doing like one thing. A lead guitar and the vocal is just screaming and trying to get all of those elements balanced in that point of the song and other points was like the thing I struggled with most. Well, I actually think that what Joel said, fixing that would help bring all those other mm-hmm. things into balance a lot more. Well, it definitely does need a little bit of EQ on the guitars and cymbals or maybe one or the other. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, but there's like one or two frequencies up there that I isolated with my ears where if I had an EQ and I was mastering it, I would have snapped them. And I feel like that little bit of tweaking, it would give it the sauce where you'd be like, oh, that sounds great. As opposed to that sounds really good. It would fit better. Yeah. So it's really subtle. It's definitely not like a major issue. I mean, what else, anything else you guys have that you guys thought? Yeah. For me, the only thing that I really wanted to sort of harp on you for was the vocals kind of fit in with everything and that's not always a bad thing but i think being on the cutting edge of modern production and modern mixing sound the idea is to kind of incorporate other genres that have taken the craft itself further so like in my opinion i kind of believe that pop music and more polished type stuff has taken modern production to a whole new level and so slowly over time like when let's say pop music takes a giant leap forward. It takes about five to 10 years before that applies to metal and rock and and other more grungy genres. So my feeling towards this song in particular was that the vocals are still living in the past 
sound wise or or sonic wise and w- what i mean by that is i think they should be more upfront and it's not just a volume thing i think it's kind of a trendy eq thing that just isn't quite happening there and i expected to you know out of hearing everything like you no know, the way you've got the kick sounding the snare you've got the guitars yeah it does sound like it's trying to kind of compete but then the vocals just blend in a little too much. I thought that the vocals could have been a little bit more upfront, have a little bit more high-end EQ. And I just want to make a guess. I could be wrong, so I'll eat my words. But I feel like you used an SM7B for the vocals. Actually, I'd, I can't remember. <laughs> I was waiting for the drum roll. <laughs> uh, I was. It was either the SM7 or the U87. I'm, I'm really not sure. But also the screamer, the, the vocalist screams like a vampire so like yeah yeah so that doesn't quite help a lot to, yeah <laughs> i know i know what you mean about his voice was just so present in that frequency range i just tried to blend it in as much as i could i know what you mean joey and it wasn't yeah. like a pretty frequency w- with his specific voice just because of the way he screams like yeah <laughs> there's also the issue when someone screams like that you want to add some presence and then as soon as you do you start to hear yeah, this yeah. weird like almost like a raspy white noise type of thing that you can't get rid of so you can't always do it and it can be challenging if you are very determined to do it even though that's what happens when you try you can go in and like do a whole bunch yeah. of automation or use like a weird combination of like transient designers and stuff i did a lot of automation on this on this song yeah and that's good and that's showing progress but uh that was my only concern was just the vocals are a little bit not competitive in terms of what they sound like. I got one more. Okay. This is really a preferential thing, but I wish there was just a little bit more 200 in your snare, like a little bit more thwack, you know, in the bottom end. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. Because like the mix was really heavy and it was really slamming and the kick drum and the bass and the guitars are super powerful. And the snare was almost... Almost there. Almost there. Yeah, it was so damn close. And I feel like a DB or two at 200, maybe three, or like a little bit of harmonic excitement in that area would be... That's it. It would it would just have that bottom where it it would really lock. Only wish I had the DFX side when I mixed <laughs> this. I'm using it all the time, but back then <laughs> uh, I'm using it now on almost everything. I just love it. DFX side is like my new best friend. That's awesome. It does a really good job of getting like that 200 because sometimes you can't get it with EQ, but that extra harmonic content down there, especially like on vintage mode. Yeah, just like a little nudge and mix uh, AB it and it's like, it's a huge difference. Not huge like it's 8 to 80, but it gives it that little humph in the mix, in the mix context. Absolutely. The other thing that uh, I think we could touch on is what you've done right. And what would be nice is to point those out specifically so that the people listening to this song yeah. can also under, get their own understanding sure. of what the standard is. One thing that I want to say then on that topic is, you know, if we want to just take it apart a little bit, one of the things that I think you did very well is how your kick levels change yeah. in accordance to how fast the material is going. Is That's super important. That's one of the main things that I get people messing yeah. up when I'm doing these crits and I didn't at any moment feel like the kicks were either yeah. too soft or too loud. They felt just right. Like they were number one anchoring and number yeah. two driving the song exactly how they needed to. 
I also really liked how they locked with the bass and like the low end of the guitars. Yep. Like I said, the mix had a lot of energy to me and a yep. really good aggression for the type of style it is. And like when I hit play, I, I immediately just started kind of nodding my head as opposed to being like sitting there with my hand on my chin, thinking and analyzing and ripping apart the mix. So that was that was a good sign. I felt like I caught the energy of the mix right away. So you really, I feel like nailed that balance right there, which is I consider the backbone of any mix very very important. <clears throat> so then let's talk about that. Let's talk about first of all what did you do with the kicks what kind of automations and then what did you do to marry it to the low end of the bass and guitar well first of all the hardest thing like for me ever since i started recording was like getting a concise and tight and clean low end and that goes back to also proper room treatment it falls back to that because all these years the thing that bothered me the most was like hearing all these mixes from different engineers and what Joel usually says like that expensive low end when you just feel it and that's like the hardest thing for me to battle in any mix. Well, let me interject a quick comment and say that I think it's not only a question but the question pretty much with any mix. I mean, that is like the primary indicator of an awesome mix before the vocals come in. At least to me, it's yeah. when you've got the low end nailed, you know you've got it nailed, and the whole thing just moves and grooves, and that's what really conveys energy in a song. Yeah, and that's like a lot of trial and error with the, this project in particular, because this like the first project I did after coming from the boot camp, so I spent a lot of time messing around with stuff that I learned and picked up, and even tricks or whatever. It wasn't like I came back from the boot camp and was like, now I'm a magic wizard. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> no, it's not like that. It took me like at least six months. Like I went in uh, December last year. I haven't actually had a chance to try everything that I learned. It's not just I go to the boot camp and now I'm a, I'm a recording hero. <laughs> no, it takes a lot of time to assimilate all the information and working it into my workflow or the way I'm I'm used to doing things. So that's why we have the follow-ups. That's super important. So starting off with the drums, I use the drum forge. Stop making us feel good. <laughs> with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. With the kick six, I use this one blended in with the the infamous kick 10. Haha, <laughs> that's awesome. And then I use some API EQs, some some SSL EQ like from Waves, C4 just to compress or keep the low end not wobbly, and then a JST clip. And the automation for the high pass goes in one of these EQs in the middle, just like before the C4, yeah. Excellent. What about the bass guitar? The bass guitar was uh, tracked with a DI through my Avalon and it's uh, split like low end and grit. It's actually one of Joey's presets, the Hellraiser, so it sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it sounded great. I didn't have to tweak a lot of it. It was just a matter of finding the, the predominant frequency in the low end of the kick and notching it out on the bass and doing the other way around where I felt the bass had more energy and dipping that in the kick. Awesome. What did you use on guitars? Guitars, I used the pod farm, then a whole lot of other stuff. Like, I used Wave Center to bring up the mids a little bit. One thing I, I did, and I don't know if you guys use this a lot, but I tried to use a mid-side EQ on the guitars. I don't know if you guys ever use this or try to use this. 
I've never done it. Other than like in mastering, I should also add. I was just trying to, to mess with it and it sounded good. So it was, was like a Fab Filter Pro-Q in MS mode and just trying to sweep around some of those frequencies in the in the vocal range, like from, let me see, 1K to three and a half, notching out a little bit of the in the middle of the guitars so it doesn't clash with the, the vocals as much. But just a, a tiny bit, like one, two and a half dB, yeah. And where did you high-pass the guitars at? 83. Okay, let's talk about whatever else you did on the low end and the low mids of the guitar to get that to, to work with the bass. On the guitar, I also use a C4, nothing much there. Uh, trying to find the right frequency, it's around, uh, I think it was like drop A, but I might be wrong. Okay, because that's a big deal, drop A versus like drop D. You know, you can have completely different settings. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. But I try to find the where the the guitar pump was coming and tame it a little bit, and then I use the um, Waves uh, SSL EQ to low cut, then boost it up a little bit again, and then I used Ozone to bring some back some of the excitement. Then after that, a linear multiband EQ. And after that, uh, L1. Now we're talking L1, hell yeah. L1 on everything. That's right. <laughs> he gets it. <laughs> <laughs> I love L1. I actually use it on more things than I should. If you look at my mixes, you, one thing you'll always see is L1 everywhere. <laughs> so while I joke about it, I actually do use it. Yeah. It's good for gain staging too. I mean... It really is. The joke is that you would just cut the peaks off of like everything so that your mix doesn't have any life that's what the joke is about but in reality what you're using it for is to remove all the headroom from any of the tracks or just yeah. to gain stage it's between plugins after plugins uh into groups out of groups like it's a great volume knob i just like to put eight of them in uh series and just max it out with the most amount of reduction possible and the highest output and then that's just on every channel that's it <laughs> Instant master. Yeah, mix done. Album over. <laughs> 400 L1s a mix. It's a great <laughs> plugin. I mean, it, it just works. It sounds good. Yeah. You can't deny L1. Yeah. So, okay, here's one thing. So, did you do the mastering on it? Yes, I did also. Okay, did you guys notice that there was a little bit of clipping, especially when guitars would play by themselves some yeah so uh, i was actually thanks for reminding me because i had two things i had the vocals and i also was one wanting to talk about the mastering hey i heard that on that new slayer <laughs> now we've just determined that you use what, what did you use for mastering again let's go through your mastering chain real quick uh first of all i, I do like a heavy mix bus like uh, you should on the boot camp with a um, ssl uh, comp then I did a max bass, just a little bit on the 88 hertz, just like real subtle at minus 16 dB. Then uh, linear multiband and into ozone. This is the, f the mix print. Then I moved to a different session to do the master. So uh, one of the things I noticed with um, after the mix was done, after I bounced it, and I came back to it like a couple of days and... One of the things I was uh, concerned was like the low end wasn't as tight as I thought, so I printed the, the mix back through uh, some Neve preamps, and it just came to life, and I was really glad with that result. After that, the linear phase EQ just to notch out some frequencies, and again, linear multiband, and then to the L1 uh, hardware compressor, yeah. 
Okay, so the hardware compressor, I am not going to be able to comment on that, but I can say that um, when you're mm -hmm. using ozone, depending on which algorithm you're using for limiting, it is possible to get clipping to occur. And a lot of people think that clipping can occur when it's just an overload of too many sounds or too much volume. So anyone that's out there who might be doing this similar chain as you, they might think, as long as I don't overload this or I don't have too much volume, I'm not going to clip. But that's not always true. The algorithm itself can clip based on what kind of content is coming through it. And that can come from doing the harmonic excitement in the wrong way or having your your algorithm can have a clipping point too. So one way that you can get around this is to do some automation on your master fader. And if you have your ozone plugin instantiated on insert mm -hmm. number seven and eight on Cubase, that actually puts it before... If you have ozone on, on insert six, then your fader is after ozone. And if you have it, your ozone on insert seven, then your fader is before ozone. So it's kind of like a... The volume automation goes before ozone, yeah. Yeah, so then you can use the master fader to automate down on sections where you're hearing a little bit of clipping, especially when like a guitar is playing by itself. And that solves that problem. And you don't really have to do a whole lot of work. The other solution to fixing it is a lot more work. It's, it requires a lot more automation and a lot more different settings in Nozone and stuff. So I would just recommend doing it the simple way where you can just change the input volume to the uh, Ozone. You know, I used to master a lot using um, FGX. And one of the things you had to do, there was a setting in there called ITP. And every time you had like a guitar spot, if you were hitting like a really high volume, for example, like minus seven RMS in FGX, which is a lot louder than it seems like an ozone to get to that range. To me, it seems like it's a, like minus three or four RMS. I'm not sure how that works or what the technical reason is, but that's what apparent volume seems to be the equivalent between the two programs. And you'd have to like automate on the guitars down the ITP to like a smoother setting. And then as soon as the band kicked in, you'd go back or else you'd get distortion on guitars. Yeah. Like going from zero to full on. Yeah. That's literally all I've got for this song. Hey, uh, good job on this. Again, thanks for coming on the show. And it's so awesome to see progression. And for any of you out there listening, I think you can make the same progression. Just apply yourself, you know, listen to the shows, do what we say. An experiment. Uh, I promise we know what we're talking about. And you know what, what would be kind of cool is uh, once this show goes live, Tiago, if you want to maybe post one of your mixes from like a year ago in yeah. the Private Producers Club forum yeah. compared to this so that people can just see how far yeah. you've come, that would be great. That would be sick. Actually, one of the latest, earliest mixes I have was like the one I sent you after the boot camp and it was actually mastered by Joey. So it will be, you can see the difference of, it's not, not the master that made the difference, but the mixing that made the difference. So I'll be more than happy to post it. I also like to, to post other stuff because I'm working now on less metal stuff. I'm working on more pop stuff. And it's also because of the, of the gradual increase in the, in the quality of the work. So that also is uh, not sticking to, to metal exclusively or one genre exclusively. So also the bootcamp allowed me to extend to other, other genres that are more re rewarding, so to speak, than metal because... We all know there's no money in metal. But wait, real quick, before we wrap it up, one thing. If you don't want to talk about the Sony thing in detail, that's fine. 
But maybe talk for a couple of minutes about just some of the career opportunities that have started coming your way lately because they're pretty legit and I think that maybe they'll inspire some of the guys in the group. Yeah, sure. It started off because of the producer that I usually work with in the studio. He's also a really good producer and that helps me a lot because I don't usually produce. I just mainly engineer. I only produce when something's like really, 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 really bad. Like music without a single chorus or the transitions are all fucked up and like 20 BPM changes. I try to steer the band in a better direction. And working with that producer, he also got better opportunities and he started bringing his work uh, so that I could work with him. So I think that's what, what all aspiring engineers or whoever's in this likes or aims for, like working with uh, big companies, big projects. And it's also a lot of responsibility and lots of stuff I wasn't used to, like being able to uh, one thing was i i got married like two, two months ago and as, as soon as i got off a 16-hour flight i had to come to the studio and mix something f to deliver to go to master it was like the craziest thing i never want to ex experience again like 18-hour flight straight into the studio work for 10 hours to have something to, to send off to mastering and that's because of uh, all the responsibilities that come working with the labels and stuff. That was like a really big, big thing for me, at least. Yeah, but you're there. So that's great. Most people aspire to be able to get to that point. Yeah, my mom would be proud. Yeah, well, congratulations, Tiago, and thank you so much for coming on. It's been awesome having you on, and it's really awesome and inspiring for us even to watch you guys grow. And you've done an awesome job, and thank you. Oh, thank you, guys. You guys are, are the shining light in the audio production. Appreciate that. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Mick DSP, professional audio plugins. For over 15 years, Mick DSP has continued producing industry-acclaimed and award-winning software titles. Visit mcdsp.com for more information. The podcast is also brought to you by Slate Digital. All the pro plugins, one low monthly price. Visit slatedigital.com for more information. Thank you for listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.